It's Monday, January 22nd, 2024, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Ah, uh, the DeSantis candidacy. What it lacked in appeal, it made up for in discomfort. Ultimately, Ron DeSantis and the voter did not connect, except on the fact that neither one liked the other much. There have been three main explanations for why the DeSantis candidacy was, if not a disaster, then maybe a disappointment. You can go like this, charm policies and Trump's unbreakable grip on the electorate. Let's go through them a little bit one by one. Charm, this can mean personality. This can mean how comfortable DeSantis seemed to be in his own skin and made others who he met comfortable in their own skin. In fact, if you're thinking about your own skin when meeting a candidate, he's probably pulling you out of the moment. Two, policy. Now, at the time, this seemed to be mm, something of a strength for DeSantis. He was going right at what Republicans seem to want, or at least what makes Fox News viewership tick up a little bit. The culture war, the fights with Disney, taking on DEI, curriculum fights in the schools, a little bit of masking. But then we get down to Trump, and maybe there was nothing you could do if Trump didn't like you. Once Trump set his sights on you, you were doomed. I would say when you go through charm, policy, and Trump, that that order is the order of importance that most pundits are putting on why DeSantis failed to fly. And I understand why that's the order. It seems plausible. But also, let's point out that it is a ranking of things that the pundits believe is true to the things that the pundits don't want to admit are true. Like all the pundits said, yeah, that DeSantis does not seem to be a charmer. You can get 100% buy-in on that one. Then a lot of the pundits would say, well, even if it's not their policy, it sure seemed logical that uh, DeSantis was doing things right in the policy realm. This is the analysts' take on what Republicans want. They want a lot of cultural war fights. Maybe it's just people who cover politics who want a lot of cultural fights. And the last thing was Trump's grip And that is something I think that people who follow politics are coming around to, but it took a while. And right after the midterms, not losses, but not wins as big as they had hoped, the Republicans did turn on Trump a little. He's losing it. He's shakier than usual. His presidential launch event was lackluster. So yeah, when analyzing why DeSantis failed, there's a little bit of a default to what the pundits actually think and what they buy and what they find harder to buy. Personally, I think it's the reverse order. In fact, I think Trump's grip on the party, which may be loosened for a time, I mean, polls do show that, but really did seem to be deep and entrenched. Trump's grip on the party pretty much dictated everything. It would take a real smooth character unlike the character of Mr. DeSantis, to bypass that. And no amount of getting the policy right or fighting with Disney was going to overcome the fact that Trump said, I am your retribution, and the Republicans agreed. DeSantis now has endorsed Trump, who has but one more opponent to vanquish. You know who it is. She was the Speaker of the House on January 6th. Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people, soldiers, National Guard, whatever they want. They turned it down. They don't want to talk about that. Wait, 
I think Trump's not talking about Nikki Haley. Everything he's saying applies to Nancy Pelosi. Nancy, Nikki, Naomi, Naomi Judd, really the best of the Judds in a lot of ways. No one ever talks about that. Nikki, Nicole, Nicole Kidman, so sad for a certain period of time. It doesn't matter what he says or what anyone running against him says. This is my theory. His grip on the party is so strong, he creates his own reality. No one else can penetrate that. He's destined for the nomination, Naomi Nation, the nomination, the inflation is the point when you think about it, which is all happening on Barack Obama's watch. Joe Biden, I meant Joe Biden. All hell, Donald Trump for president, whose main line of attack is that his rival, Joe Biden, has lost his mental edge. On the show today, well, it's not a Trump nomination yet. We will get to hear from Trump surrogates who are making the case. Men like Tim Scott, who have a wealth of statistics to share with CNN, and we will tell you why CNN NBC, others who should be arbiters of truth, eh, really more into feelings. But first, on to the Granite State and the host of the Beyond Politics podcast, Matt Robeson, former congressional staffer, and Paul Hodes, former U.S. representative from New Hampshire, to tell you why, in their opinion, Haley maybe kind of has an outside shot. Let's listen. So here's the irony and here's the problem for me. When I want to consider New Hampshire politics, when I want to ensconce myself, immerse myself, bathe in New Hampshire politics, there is this one podcast I always listen to, but it is called Beyond Politics. I do not wish to go beyond politics. I want to imbibe all that is New Hampshire politics. Okay, setting that aside, the co-hosts of this program are Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. Matt is a former congressional staffer, and Paul is a former New Hampshire congressman. He was national co-chair of Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, and they're going to analyze what might happen when New Hampshire votes for the presidency. Matt, Paul, welcome to The Gist. Hey, Mike, it's a pleasure. Glad to be here. So, Matt, I was reading what you were writing in Newsweek and listening to what you were saying on the show. You expressed a great deal of ire about a framing of Donald Trump's performance. And I have to say I'm guilty of it, if in fact guilt is the word. I looked at how much he won by, and it was 30% of the vote. And I said, ah, he won big. He won more than half the votes. Why am I wrong? I think it's because we've all fallen under the spell of the dominant media narrative. I sound like I'm hand-wavingly criticizing the media. I'm not just kind of doing that exercise because it's fun. I just want to do a thought experiment for your listeners. What if Joe Biden had gotten the same result that Donald Trump did? What if he had barely managed to eke out half, half of the 8% of, we'll call them Democrats, the 8% of his party that bothered to show up because they were motivated to get there? Imagine what the headlines would have said. And then contrast them with that with what the headlines actually said about Donald Trump. I'm just suggesting that major media outlets would have been well within their rights and well justified to say Biden is struggling. And similarly, they could have said, wow, Trump is showing massive vulnerability here. I think that that's when I look at the numbers and, and what's one click down below the numbers, 
It's stunningly obvious to me. And when I talk to other former recovering political operatives, campaign manager types like me who are looking at these numbers, they're all saying the same thing privately to me. And yet we're kind of all sleepwalking over a cliff with this idea of, oh, yeah, Trump, you know, he's he's running away with this. He's doing great. Hey, Mike, you know, Matt is not just uh, parroting Sarah Palin, although I've accused him of parroting Sarah Palin uh, slamming the lamestream media. But he's right. The media has it totally wrong. Trump could not gin up enough support to get beyond this tiny percentage of the most MAGA of MAGA Republicans in the country to come out, first of all. And then he only got half of them. And and the, the 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 media wants to turn it into some kind of dominant performance by the great orange Cheeto. They're just wrong. Okay, here's uh, some countervailing arguments. One, so you say, what if it was Joe Biden? I don't know if a duck's heartbeat at 1,200 beats a minute, that would be remarkable. But it's not remarkable for a hummingbird, meaning they're both foul but different species. Joe Biden is an incumbent president. If he ran and got 51% of the vote, that would be, well, historically a death knell for a sitting incumbent. Donald Trump is a different animal. There was low turnout because there was a massive chill. There was low turnout because Iowans, I think, correctly said, we know who's going to win. And there might have been, and this is a Ron DeSantis argument, even lower turnout or lower support for DeSantis and Haley because the media called it. Now, this I will blame the media on. The media called it beforehand. So if we're not supposed to say that Donald Trump dominated, who did we say did well? The candidates with 30 percent fewer of the vote? All right. As uh, Samuel L. Jackson said in Pulp Fiction, allow me to retort. Um, first of all, in terms of being the incumbent president, from the standpoint of Iowa Republican voters, Donald Trump is the incumbent president. Literally, two-thirds of them on entrance polls walking into the Iowa caucuses said that they thought he was the legitimate president. So in their minds, they're talking about voting for the guy they think deserves to be and kind of is still president. The other number that I'd kind of throw out there that's, again, this is just one click depth down if people engage a little bit of critical thinking about it is, and this is ABC News reported this. I'm going to read their sentence. By a split of 63% to 32%, respondents to their entrance poll say that they consider Trump fit for office despite a conviction. Now, think about this. What they're really saying here is that one third of, how did Paul put it there, the country's most MAGA Republicans to ever MAGA down the pike, one third of them, the most dedicated Republican core base voters, say that they would abandon Trump if he loses any of the 91 felony count cases that stand against him. That is a breathtaking vulnerability for any candidate. And so I just, I, I again kind of go back to the idea of, I hear the argument that ah, he won by 30 points. That's great. But I am telling you from a campaign management perspective, if you can only drum up half of your voters and your core base, your most dedicated likely voters are saying, yeah, but if you lose any of these court cases, we're dropping you like a hot potato. I would be nervous. I would be 
extremely worried. And one other thing I want to add is coming from the frozen north um, and looking back at Iowa, I mean, yeah, is it cold? Sure. Are they used to it? Yeah, this is the kind of weather they chop holes in the ice and go swimming in. Hold on. Hold on, Paul. It was minus seven degrees. It wasn't 36 degrees. That was 2016. Ah. It wasn't 20. Minus seven. Ah, Like, that's dangerous. I know. know. Mahomes will go out and carve apart uh, the Miami defense. Correct. They went out and played football in minus seven. Taylor Swift was inside uh, a parka. But yes, okay, fine. (laughs) Stipulated. Well, you, but one point about that, you realize that there are 1,600 Iowa caucus sites. Most of them are in people's literal basements or church basements. What you're talking about is, can you manage to get into your car and roll down the street to your local church basement? I think most Iowa people would say, yeah, I, I can do that. Not, not too worried about the weather. Right. So why this really matters is because of perception. I mean, why it really, really matters is Trump won 20 delegates of the 1,100 he needs. So almost nothing. But it matters in terms of perception. And so therefore, you could say if Nikki Haley, uh, specifically Nikki Haley, were seen as having uh, a good showing in Iowa, she might have a better chance in New Hampshire. But I would say that's true. It's debatable. It does all dissipate whether your analysis is correct or my more mainstream media analysis is correct, it does all dissipate with the New Hampshire vote, right? If Nikki Haley does rather poorly, then maybe we could go back and say, okay, some portion of it was because we overinterpreted Iowa, but really in a week or in a couple days, it won't even matter if we got Iowa right or wrong, will it? The New Hampshire results will be what matters. Mike, you're right about the perception and the importance of the perception, because I think we're already seeing some of that at play in New Hampshire, uh, where polls before Iowa had Nikki Haley with momentum closing a gap. One poll had her seven points behind Trump. And now um, polls are showing uh, perhaps a double-digit double-digit gap. And I think that's because of the perception that the media created around what happened in Iowa uh, with Trump. Now, the New Hampshire primary is always volatile. And and nobody makes up their mind finally until, you know, they're actually like stepping into the booth in New Hampshire. They wait till the very end to really make up their mind. But it the perception, as you put it, really, I think, has um, has hurt uh, Haley a bit coming into New Hampshire. And if I can build on that for a second, I would also argue that this isn't necessarily about Nikki Haley. Sure, it matters whether or not Donald Trump faces a long slog to the nomination and a wealth funded opponent that would be going up against him and bringing him down. I think this is largely about, forget Haley for a second, the the, the arc of his candidacy against Joe Biden. Back in the 1950s and 60s, one of the ways that public opinion was turned against the KKK was the Stetson Kennedy-inspired campaign called Frown Power, where the idea was, if you can show some social sanction to the idea of, hey, it's not okay to be in the KKK, if you can show some public pushback to that and give people the signal of what this all means, you can actually have a real-world effect on their opinions and the way that they'll behave. And it worked, at least to some degree. I would argue that the same thing is at play right now. You have 
a mainstream media narrative. And I know that sounds trite, but you have a, a narrative that's normalizing Donald Trump. And that's also showing him as stronger, more viable and a more realistic alternative to the president than he really deserves to be. And then he really is They're They're basically giving him the best unpaid media that money can't buy that's shoring up his image and his strength. Most voters are not political junkies like us. They're getting this a little bit sometimes, and they're drawing impressions from that about how viable and real he is. And that has a real danger of becoming real in their political behavior. But they didn't even play his MSNBC and CNN didn't even play his acceptance speeches. They make a big show of Trump's a liar. We can't give you unfettered, uncut access to him. Absolutely true. But I mean, they also have a vested interest in maintaining the storyline here. I mean, it was estimated back in 2016 that he received about $2 billion of what we call euphemistically earned media in the trade, free media, right? As a, as a campaign person, you are constantly trying to get media for your boss. When Paul was a congressman, when he was running for the U.S. Senate, we obsessed about how do we get this guy on Mike Pesca's show? How do we get him in the newspaper? You're going to see so many stories coming up this week, and we've lived them, Paul and I. When Paul was a major surrogate for Obama in 2008, we they, the Obama campaign had Paul going around to all these little diners and doing what you picture on the West Wing as campaigning in New Hampshire. It's real. We'd sit down in a, you know, Paul would sit with five voters in a diner in Peterborough, New Hampshire, and it's real, but it's a Potemkin village thing. It's, it's being done for the benefit of the reporter who you're trying to entice and come along. And I, that's that's really what this is all about. That's what you're seeing in New Hampshire. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that the incentives of the media are very much in question here. And even if they're not covering Trump's speeches, even if they're not like giving him all the free airtime that he enjoyed back in 2016, by reporting things the way they are, they are very much helping him. Yeah, they have certain biases, but isn't one bias a bias towards excitement and drama and a race and, in fact, maybe acting as if Nikki Haley has a shot and can come up from nowhere and emphasizing that one poll that you cited, which was the only poll that has ever showed her within 10 percent points of Trump? Isn't that a bias? Absolutely. Look, it's their job to sell airtime to their advertisers. Okay. That's what they're trying to do. They don't care about informing us. They don't care about telling us the the real facts. What they care about is selling advertising time. So of course they want a horse race because in New Hampshire, politics is the state sport. It's what everybody, you know, it's like, it's like people go to bed with scorecards for the politics during, during the primary. Oh, I, I scored a Haley. Oh, I got a Trump. Oh, I, I saw Christie. Oh, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. so that that's the that's the big deal in, in New Hampshire. And of course, as Matt said, I ate a lot of scrambled eggs and uh, muffins with people in, in diners, but I didn't if do we, it. If we had blood results from yeah. you, campaign season and not campaign oh my season, God. would oh we my be gosh. able to tell via cholesterol a level when you were campaigning? My LDL went, no, you went know, crazy. You know how you could tell? When Paul would call me up and he sounded like the undead and he'd say, uh -huh. Matt, Call the attending physician of the Capitol. I need a Z pack. And he would literally, Paul would literally go until he collapsed. Like this, this actually happened. Sorry, I'm committing a HIPAA violation here, uh, Paul. But <laughs> that's you know. okay. Go ahead. HIPAA me, baby. HIPAA me. Yeah, no, this is this is a very, very real thing. The the point I was making was I'd eat scrambled eggs and English muffins all day at the diners. 
for an audience of a scrum yes. of reporters, right? Yes. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, yes, it was nice to meet the voters, but when I was surrogate for Obama, it was because we were trying to make some news somewhere, some any way we could. And, mm-hmm. and that's what, you know, that's, that's what, you know, this year there's probably, there may, maybe a little bit less coverage in New Hampshire. People are, uh, you know, whether it's budgets or uh, what's going on, it's maybe a little bit harder for some of the also rands to uh, get some coverage. But Mike, I'll give you a flavor of this. I mean, one of the things that Paul and I experienced in 2008 was we would go to various, on primary day itself, we were dispatched to various polling places. They co- cared more about Paul. He was the elected guy. I was you know, the behind the scenes guy, but we were meeting with voters as they were walking in and out to vote. And in New Hampshire, if you are an independent, what they call an undeclared, about 40% of voters are, by the way, in New Hampshire, you can vote in either primary. And we encountered lots of people. They say the plural of anecdote is data. Well, we got a lot of data that day on people who were came to us and said, well, I'm trying to decide between McCain and Obama. That's <laughs> where people were in their mindset. This was a very live question for them. And the very fact that they people who were such diametrically opposed opposites in political terms were you know, kind of in a horse race in these voters' minds, says everything that you need to know about, first of all, voters see these things very differently than political junkies like us, right? And you know, the impressions they get are from, you know, these media touches that the campaigns work so hard to build up, Um, you know, and so this stuff really does matter. That's why we go through these exercises. And that's also why Haley may be, you know, may, may have a shred, a glimmer of some kind of hope, a little hole in the line. If the a line shred of a glimmer yeah. of a scintilla right. of That's a right. whiff. If a linebacker yes. goes this way and the guard pulls that way, and maybe I can get in a hole, and maybe if I keep churning my legs, I'll get three yards. It's Lloyd Christmas. It's you're saying there's a chance. I'm mm-hmm. saying there's a chance because of the undeclared uh, voters, the 4,000 Democrats who switched parties to undeclared, hope maybe some of them want to vote in the Republican primary, uh, the Christie voters who now know, have no home except for Haley, um, the undeclareds who really, by and large, are, are, are unhappy about Donald Trump and think that if, if New Hampshire puts up the bulwark against Trump, we not only go down in history, but we save democracy. And maybe even if it's frigid and it snows on Tuesday in New Hampshire at minus seven degrees, a, a swell of undeclareds comes out and, and propels Haley uh, up the charts to, I don't know, maybe close. Okay, so maybe it'll happen. Maybe it's wish casting. I think it is. Um, just I, we could cite polls. The polls that they've conducted since Christie left actually show Trump receiving a higher percentage percent of the vote than Haley does. But what if Haley wins or comes close? I know South Carolina is next. She was governor there, but from the polls I've seen, that's not locked up. And then comes Super Tuesday, which is a huge media buy, which seems none of these very nice bespoke aspects of a small state like New Hampshire, we could get our arms around it. None of that will be a play. So what's any 
sort of whiff of a scintilla of a hint of a rumor of a path forward, even if she does well in New Hampshire. All right. There is a there is a pathway here. And it starts with looking one click level down in one of those poll results that you just cited. We frequently had the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics on our show. He oversees a very high quality poll. And one of the things they found is that, as you say, Mike, seven percent increase in Trump support since Iowa, but about half of that is driven by the perception of how well he did. The voters are citing the Iowa caucus as the reason. So that's another way of saying that everything we've been talking about here in terms of media coverage and momentum is real, and it could benefit Nikki Haley. If, as you say, she does really well in New Hampshire, then yes, she is down about an average of 50 to 25 in South Carolina. But it is her home state, and she has doubled her support there in the last two months. And what we've seen before is these kinds of insurgent candidacies do get money bombs if they do really, really well in New Hampshire. What does a a Nikki Haley whiff of a chance look like? It, It looks like staying viable enough, doing well enough in New Hampshire, staying viable enough through Super Tuesday so that she's in it, so that if these cases start to get significant coverage and Republican voters start to get more uncomfortable, she is at least in the ball game toward the end. Not high probability, but possible. Why is it important to lay out this case? You, I may, I might think, all right, you could convince me she has a 7% chance. Maybe you want to make a bold case that she has a 17% chance. I don't know what you'd put the percent, but why is it so important for you guys to do? Because we're relentless, optimistic idealists, and uh, we've got to hope there's a chance for democracy and some sanity in order to uh, gin up uh, happiness among our Democratic colleagues so that Democrats think, hey, there, there's some kind of contest where maybe we're not running against Trump. Except the that's, back, that's, the, except the backwards thinking about that is Haley's a better candidate against old Joe Biden than Trump is. So right. Democrats who, you know, yes, we're patriots. We care about democracy. We want Haley. But on the other hand, we're scared of Haley because she could beat our guy. But your answer is so honest. And I think that's exactly right. And I think that's the problem because when it turns out that Nikki Haley doesn't win or doesn't win by a lot in New Hampshire, I'm going to just say doesn't win or the seven or 17% chance doesn't happen. What are Democrats to think? They will despair. They will buy into doomerism. They will believe that Nikki Haley was our only hope. Uh, They will also think that come a general election, that if Trump wins the well, it's very good to be motivated by that, but I think that they will over despair based on that. We have lived lived through a Trump presidency once. And I wonder, this is, you're trying to do a radio show and talk amongst your friends and tell them things that don't make them want to jump off a four-story building. And I get all that. And it's very humane. I just don't know that it serves a positive overall cause when you really look at the big picture. As an inhumane person, I will say that, first ah. of all, I am willing, I, I, I'm I, being very serious about this. I'd rather lose a general election to Nikki Haley. I'd rather, if that, if, if that means that we don't face the very real chance, and I think it's a very real chance of the end of the republic under a, a second Trump term, then I'll live with that. Nikki Haley is way too conservative 
for my personal political tastes. I think there are real negative consequences for the people of America. Boy, that sounds highfalutin. I think there's real negative consequences, but I would take that because she believes in the Constitution. And the other thing, I, the other thing I, I just sneak in and say is, no, all hope is not lost. I mean, it, remember, only five states have changed the, their their party vote in presidential contests in the last two elections. Only five states. Both parties start with a base of around 220 electoral votes. It's like the Democrats with 222, the Republicans with 219. So there's a vet, this is going to be a close election no matter what. If Haley goes down, as is probably the case, all hope is not lost. Not by a long shot. We are very, very much in this. Um, it just means that we have to focus like a laser beam. And I do think that there are plenty of indications that what we're picking up in in polling, Joe Biden's low approval numbers, some of the matchup problems. Look, Americans have been saying through pollsters that they are unhappy for a very long time. The median number of Americans who say that the country is on the wrong track over the last decade, 71%. But if you look at their individual answers, are they happy with their own economic situation? Do they feel that things are getting better? Are they are they bullish about the future? All of those individual numbers are much, much better. And so I do think that as the race clarifies into Trump versus Biden, and it's that kind of a choice, Biden is going to start to do a lot better. And look, except for the fact that that Trump is a phenomenon. He's a loser. He's a thug. He's a pig. He's probably going to be a convicted felon at some point. And he's a traitor. But other than, other than that, well, I like pigs, but except yeah. for Trump. But <laughs> but but when 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 we we're going to have to turn around and then start making sure people understand that you know Biden is a winner. Trump is a loser. We're running against a loser. And ultimately, um, as a Democrat, would I? Yes, is it a huge chance for our democracy? Yeah, but would I rather run against Trump? I think I would. Paul Hodes is a former New Hampshire congressman. He co-hosts Beyond Politics with Matt Robeson, who's a former congressional staffer. I listen to it all the time, glued to it for the New Hampshire primary and beyond. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks a lot. And now the spiel. Tim Scott is engaged. Nice, or maybe nose. Noche, minde, N-O-C-E. Nose. That's the girlfriend. She said yes, which is the last line of the first paragraph of the coverage by Maya King in the New York Times, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who for years faced speculation about his marital status on Sunday proposed to Mindy Nose, his girlfriend and an interior designer who lives in Charleston. Faced speculation about his marital status. What could that mean? Faced speculation. It's on his tax forms. He would always say single, never been married. So what's the spec? Uh, yeah, it's that he was gay. Now, there was no real question, concern, proof, stronger than rumor that Tim Scott was gay. But when you wrote an article about Tim Scott, you had to mention in however sly way you could 
the questions, well, is he gay? And maybe you quote someone else, quoting someone else, denying that he's gay. The best version of this was a Washington Post story by Ben Terrace. Ben Terrace, a really good journalist. And he wrote a piece which flat out said, I do not want to engage in a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, confirm bachelor. He is just a bachelor. I can confirm he, he is a bachelor, said Ben Terrace. I was there when he flirted with waitresses. I know that he says he has sex with women. You're writing about U.S. Senator. But there was a clause in this Washington Post story that I thought could be the new euphemism to end all euphemisms. The joke has always been that he is secretly gay or something, an unnamed operative told me. I don't really buy that. But he's got an interesting history. And then the operative sent Harris a dossier that, quote, included details about Scott having owned property and shared a jet ski with male friends. <laughs> well, let us put an end to all speculation involved in individual or tandem watercraft. Tim Scott is engaged. Mindy Nose, Nice or Noche has made an honest man of him. But not so honest that he would go on CNN and say something other than this. When you have DAs around the country that says it's no longer a crime to steal $1,000 worth of goods and those stores start closing in San Francisco and across the country, you ask yourself, what, what president allowed that lawless behavior to continue? That's Joe Biden. The answer is Donald Trump. Larceny theft in San Francisco peaked in 2017, Trump's first year in office, at over 44,000 incidents. It stayed high, 39,000 the next two years. Then, of course, cratered during the pandemic when everything was locked down, but never came back to those levels of the Trump years. Yes, it went to 32,000 in 2022, but last year, 14,000 larceny thefts. Now, every anchor of every national news show can't know the crime stats in every city, but San Francisco became this iconic example because they voted out the DA, Chase Boudin. Dana Bash, hosting CNN State of the Union, probably remembered this, and that was in 2022. Boudin was recalled as supported by the Democratic mayor and replaced with a Democratic DA, and all of that was on Joe Biden's watch, too. It was all irrelevant. I mean, you can't blame Joe Biden for shoplifting in San Francisco, but those are the accurate stats. It kind of is the worst example to show that Joe Biden had an impact on shoplifting in a city, that shoplifting there was lower than during Donald Trump's time in office. But that wasn't the only stat that Scott tried to slip by. He went with a national economic claim as well. Seven million new jobs, the lowest unemployment rates for African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, a 70-year low for women, and a 50-year low for the majority population. That, during the Trump years. And during the Biden years, America did better. Trump created 7 million jobs, checks out under Biden, 14 million. Trump took unemployment to new lows, and then Biden took it even lower. I would like my news anchors to jump on misleading national economic statistics, but I understand if they can't, fact-checking numbers is tedious. You know it's the right thing to do, but you might not have all the appropriate figures at your fingertips. 
What CNN did do was uh, less great. They invited on a Democratic senator, Chris Coons, and allowed him to recite competing data. He said that unemployment was below 4% for the longest stretch in 15 years and talked about the 14 million jobs. That leaves the viewer to somehow be expected to adjudicate the competing claims. And even if an anchor were to jump in and say, yes, you're right, and by the way, the last guest was wrong, that would have less of an impact than just telling Tim Scott, wait a minute, but Dana Bash shouldn't do any of that. She took a different approach. Can I just push back on that a little bit because you brought it up? Uh, what you said about the data, uh, it, it may not be wrong. It is right. You should say it's right. You should have said Tim Scott's stats were misleading. That should have been noted. But actual facts and accuracy wasn't as important as the point that Bash wanted to get to. Uh, it, it may not be wrong, but you know better than I do, the way people feel is how they vote. And despite all of those accomplishments, President Biden is having trouble breaking through with voters, making particularly working class voters, young voters, those who he uh, needs historically has had as part of his coalition. They're not feeling it. How does the campaign need to change strategy so that they feel it and they don't just hear it and see it on data points? Data, Dana, so close, but so far, data and Dana. Data, we should note, is the numerical expression of actual collective experience. One answer is for the media not to say, oh, numbers, ah, sometimes they include decimal points. Who can ever really know what they mean? Give me some feelings. Hit me with the feelings. You're a news show. You're not a feelings show. I do understand the political questions. I do understand that winning campaigns connect via the heart and not the head. But before you can get to that strategy of emotional connectivity, how about, just as a news show, a smattering of some actual facts? Because you are in the nonfiction business. You can say, here's what's actually happening. I do understand. I do understand. Numbers are oh so bad. They're so unfun. Who really wants to be put in the position after chase down the numbers, the facts? assuring the accuracy of claims. I mean, there are feelings to get to. Maybe one reason people can't have the feelings that maybe you think they should have is because the places where they go to get their facts don't engage in the facts anymore. Over on Meet the Press, NBC reporter Dasha Burns, who I like, just like I like Dana Bash, DBs, they're all the way. But she too is getting all up in the people's supposed feelings. They feel that the Biden administration touting how good the economy is when they don't feel yeah. it right. is is out of touch and they feel uh, kind of slapped in the face a little bit. They feel slapped in the face. And if you don't hold their hands and tell them the economy is really bad, even though it's not, you're doing something wrong. Look, I know I shop. I know Frosted Flakes are really expensive, especially compared to a couple years ago. Everything in the grocery store is. But almost everyone has a job. Wages are outpacing inflation. You could buy a used car without paying new car plus pallet of Frosted Flake prices. The Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index rose 13% in January to reach its highest level since July of 21. Oh no, I said a number. I said two numbers, including the date. We can only really say how the number makes us feel, according to NBC. And, and, and if, yeah. if, you, if you don't acknowledge people's 
feelings. That's right. Like, that's not how you so get that. That's the correction are, yes. that a lot of Democrats Cam- are asking Campaigns for. are exactly won and lost. That. I think we would agree on this. Yeah. And how you make people feel. Yeah. Absolutely. Not on data. Yep. Not, not on, on numbers. Not on right. spreadsheets. Spreadsheets. Slide rules. Abacus eye. Abacuses? Come on. A political campaign doesn't have to pander to the voters' feelings. I get why media thinks it does. Pandering to viewers' feelings are exactly how they chase audience. But a political campaign can go out there and relentlessly talk about lower gas prices, low unemployment, high wages. You don't fear insulting the voter by touting your success. That's just nuts. You know, the Dow's at a record high. You didn't know that? That's Joe Biden's fault. You don't know that. If Donald Trump were president, you don't think he'd be saying, I don't know, four to 500 times a day, look at the Dow. The Dow's high. How's your IRA? 401k. You got to love the Dow. Love the Dow. There'd be all these pieces saying, you know, not everyone invests in the stock market. And even though the Dow's high, what about the little guy? And Donald Trump, he's so stuck in 1985 when the Dow was the only game in town. But it wouldn't matter. He'd be out there selling the Dow, rightly so. Dow, Dow, Dow. Jobs, jobs, jobs. He'd act as if he were feeling great about the economy. And his legions of fans would feel great about the economy. And soon, when a whole bunch of people are feeling great about the economy, the economy economy starts feeling great about itself. Everyone else comes along. That's the feeling you generate. It's not a fear of numbers, actually good numbers. Don't fear them. Embrace the numbers. Numbers are just numerical representations of actual good things happening right now. And especially, I say, embrace the numbers, accurate numbers, you, Senator Tim Scott. May you have many years of marital happiness And as interest rates lower and your purchasing power increases, perhaps you will invest in more jet ski weekends with the boys. That's it for today's show. The Quaint Mallards produced the gist. That'd be Corey Wara, just producer. Joel Patterson, just senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is sponsored by AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Do Pru, G Pru, Do Pru. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.